The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. so proud of Pastor Jackson Wilson. Yes. I have known I have known Jackson for a while now. I met him when he was in high school. He served in my kids uh, one of my kids classes, started leading in there, and he is such an incredible man of integrity, a man of God, really is. He's not just up here to give us a weekend off. That is not the intention. He's up here because he has heard from the Lord. He has been to the mountain, and he got a message for you today. And I'm just telling you, I, you know, here's the thing. I don't know about you, but when I come to church, like, a feel-good message is great. But honestly, like, I like, I like it when you cut me a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of, like, I, here's how I see it. You've seen the movie Rocky, right? You remember that scene where Rocky's in the corner, and his eyes all swollen up because he's been taking a beating, and he says, cut me, Mick cut me, right? Because he needs to see better. And so he needs a cut, right? Sometimes you need a cut. Somebody say, cut me. So if he's preaching good today, just say, cut me, Jackson. Cut me. And he will, because I'm telling you, I heard this message first service so good. All right. So if you would, would you give a big new song welcome to my friend, Jackson Wilson. Thank you. Sit down, sit down. <laughs> It's good to see you guys. Happy Sunday. Look to your neighbor and say, happy Sunday. It's a good day of the week, but it's not the best day of the week because that's Wednesday nights. So sorry about you. Man, it is so good to be here. If you don't know me, my name's Jackson. I'm the student pastor here. I've been serving New Song for about to finish out my fourth year, starting my fifth year here. And um, I love it. I literally could not imagine being anywhere else. I'm so grateful for where God has me and my family. I hope you feel that way too. But I'm ready to get in the Word today. Y'all ready to get in the Word? Yeah. Let's do it. We are continuing a series that we started two weeks ago called Stronger. Look at your neighbor say, Stronger. 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 I love this series. And uh, if you're ready to dive into the Word of God with me, I'm going to tell you to do something that I tell my students every single Wednesday. They could probably recite it. They probably get tired of me saying it, but I don't care because it's that important. But what we're about to do we're about to open the word of God, let it speak to us. This is not about me talking. This is not about a good message, but this is about you potentially hearing the voice of God. Amen. And so, but what we have to do in order for that to happen, to hear God speak to us, we have to have ourselves in a posture that's ready to receive. And you know, all throughout the Bible, it's, it's very clear that you can be in the same room as signs and wonders. You can be in the same room as the son of God preaching to you and totally miss it because your heart posture was off. You weren't ready to receive. And so whatever you need to do today to get yourself in a posture that's ready to receive, I wanna encourage you to do it. Some people take notes, I'm all for that. If you need to get the New Song app out, we've got all of my notes on there. And by the way, if you haven't looked at the New Song app yet recently, we have the best looking church app on the planet. Thank you, David Atkins. So make some noise for David. But uh, so get the app out, do whatever you need to do to approach this moment to where you can hear the voice of God today. But we are, uh, we're continuing a series called Stronger. If you're just now joining us for this series, we're focusing on characteristics of discipleship that need to be in us that are stronger than the characteristics uh, that we see running rampant in our culture today. And unfortunately, some of these, uh, these characteristics we are actually seeing starting to rise in the American church today. So if you remember in, past, in week one, Pastor Sarah kicked off this series, laying the foundation, bringing us into the story of a guy named Bonhoeffer. Do you guys remember that? Bonhoeffer, who was he? He was a pastor, a martyr of the faith, uh, and he lived during the time of the rise of the Nazi empire. And so at this moment, he is seeing a very important cultural moment in history. He is seeing the rise of Hitler, the rise of the Third Reich, and it's this radical discipleship into Nazism. And at the exact same time that this is happening, he is seeing the compromise of the German church. He's seeing the German church just start to compromise their faith, go with the flow of where culture is leading. And so what he started to recognize was 
if Hitler is going to be so radically determined to disciple people into Nazis, how much more should the church be radically devoted to their savior and discipleship? Are you following me? And so in the same way, we're looking at this series and we're saying, how have we run into the flow of culture and not been radically devoted to Jesus? And so Fast forward to today, to our modern context that we find ourselves in. I want to just let you guys in on something. We're not in the same boat as Bonhoeffer was. Like, I'm not up here, and we're not preaching these messages to, to try to scare our church into discipleship. That's not the heart. And we're also, we're not saying that the culture that we live in is the same kind of demonic culture that Bonhoeffer found himself in. But the reality that, we've, that we do find in our culture today is we live in a country that is very quickly becoming, and in some places is already a post-Christian nation. So that means we live in a country that is no longer looking to your typical biblical Christian values. In fact, our culture is actually starting to get an aggressive stance against biblical values. And as our country over the last five to 10 years has gotten radically more secular, when we look at the American church, we, we see that as a whole, not every church, but as a whole, we haven't really been as devoted to Jesus. We haven't been as devoted to discipleship. We've gone apathetic in some areas of our faith, and we've seen compromise start to take place in the church. And the reality and the proof is in the fact that we don't look that different than culture sometimes. Like when you look at statistics, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Divorce, the divorce rate in the church is the same as in our culture today. Uh, the percentage of full-time pastors who are addicted to pornography would shock you. The fact that we live in a culture and, and in a generation where uh, most of the church is biblically illiterate, meaning we don't know what the Bible says, we don't read our Bibles, we have no idea what good or bad theology is, that's a problem. And then finally, we see that there's a whole generation, Gen Z, millennials, a lot of people every single year are leaving their faith because we live in a culture that is pushing the fact that there's no absolute truth. So why, why choose Christianity? Why don't you just float around in life? And we see tons of young people leaving their faith every year because they haven't been taught what true discipleship looks like. And so in this series, we are trying to get back to a place of pure, genuine, wholehearted discipleship. Amen? And then finally, I do just want to clarify, like this series is not about bashing the American church and it's not about bashing mega churches and that's not our heart behind this at all. The, the real reality that we are trying to do is we're trying to look inward and ask ourselves individually this question, is my pursuit of God and the things that he cares about stronger than where culture is trying to take me? So we're not looking outward, we're looking at inward and saying, are the pursuits in my life stronger for God than stronger where the culture is trying to take me? So we've talked about already how our convictions need to be stronger than compromise. We talked last week about how our worship must be stronger than idolatry. And today we're going to be continuing the series talking about how our sacrifice must be stronger than privilege. So let's pray. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Father, I thank you so much for today. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this room. I'm so encouraged by our church and the body of Christ and what you are doing here and the families that just got planted into this house. And God, there's just so much fruit happening, but we are not content to camp out and stay here and say that we've, we've got it all figured out. Holy Spirit, take us deeper, get us stronger. God, we wanna go back to a place of full devotion to you and you alone. And so God, like Pastor Josh said, cut our hearts because your word is the sword of the spirit and it cuts between bone and marrow. And so Holy Spirit, we say our hearts are open, cut us, say whatever you need to say to get us into stronger devotion to you. In the mighty name of Jesus and everybody said, amen, amen. amen. Stronger, stronger than that, sacrifice must be stronger than privilege. Now, we've got to take a moment and define a word in this message title because when I say the word privilege, I recognize that that is an extremely loaded word in our culture today and we live in a very polarized society. I don't know if you knew that. You probably didn't. Probably had no idea. But we, we live in a very polarized society and you can say a single word like this word, privilege, and you can have people feeling all types of different ways. 
And so let's get on the same page about what I'm talking about today. Because in fact, I remember two years ago, in the middle of all of the pandemic stuff that was happening, there was, if you remember, there was political tension, there was mask mandate tension, there was racial tension. It was a tense season of life. Do you remember this? And I don't know if you felt this way, but I, I felt this way. Sometimes in conversations or you're sitting under a message or whatever, it's like everybody was walking around on eggshells. It was like, I don't know what to say around you because you might hate me if I say something wrong. You know what I'm talking about? It was just crazy. Like, it didn't matter what you said. You could say one thing wrong and you'd have the whole room love you and the other, other half of the room would want to crucify you and just, just, it was bad. So... I want to get on the same page today because even though it seems like things have cooled off since then, the reality is this is a word with a lot of stuff that comes with it, this word privilege. And so I want to just be clear. This is not a message about white privilege. I'm not here to tell you whether that is true or a reality or not. This is not a critical race theory message. I really don't want to talk about any of that stuff that comes along with this word. I want to define this word for what it really is, and I want to look at it spiritually. What does spiritual privilege look like in the life of a believer, and how does that corrupt our faith? How does that compromise our faith? Is that okay with you guys? So let's define this word privilege today. Here's what it is. Privilege is a special right, advantage, or immunity granted or available only to a particular person or group. So it's not for everybody. Not subject to, these people are not subject to the usual rules or penalties because of some special circumstance. So this can look uh, different in a lot of different ways. Here's a couple examples. Let's pretend that we've got somebody who's a college student. They come from a very wealthy family and they get caught for drug abuse. So they get thrown into jail. Uh, my dad actually works in the rehab industry. So he sees this story like on a daily basis, works with these kind of people. And so penalty, or, uh, privilege for this person could look like, well, they're in, they're in jail and they get bailed out extremely quickly because of their family's wealth. And then they get sent to the, the best, most expensive, most innovative rehab in the entire country. This is privilege, right? Because not everybody who gets thrown into jail for drug abuse is getting this kind of opportunity, right? Another uh, example of this that's not as heavy but is still privilege could be, let's pretend, that you grew up with somebody, you knew them since kindergarten, and you went off to have a normal person, boring job, and they grew up to be like a professional, super famous musical artist. Does anybody know somebody like this? You grew up with them, and they're famous now? Nobody? We got one person? Okay, okay, a couple people. So imagine with me, you got this friend, you grow up in kindergarten together, and then they go off and they become this big public figure, let's just say they're a country music artist. And they're, they're coming through OKC on tour, and you have a connection with this person, right? So you text them, you're like, hey, man, do you, you think it's cool if I come see you tonight? Like, you're coming through my ground. And so they're like, yeah, come on down to the venue. And so you go down to the venue, and you text your buddy, hey, I'm here. Like, where do I need to go? And they invite you around the back, you know, where the, down, the, where, down the alley where there's this big bouncer blocking a door. And you get to pass, you get to walk right past through all of the peasants who are waiting outside of the venue. And you're like, yeah, I know him. And so you walk around the back and they let you in and you get to go into the green room where there's like all these, you know, finger sandwiches everywhere and these club sodas. And, and they've even got like free merchandise for you on the couch. Like this is privilege, right? Because not everybody going to that show is getting the same kind of experience as you, right? Does this make sense? This is privilege. And, uh, but what does this look like spiritually? What does spiritual privilege look like when it begins to creep into the life of a believer? And how does that affect our walk with the Lord? Well, I'm defining spiritual privilege this way. It's this. It's the assumption that because I have been faithful or obedient or good in certain aspects of my faith, I am entitled to certain advantages or am immune to certain disadvantages. So it's like this, it's this moment where we have a choice to make. And we, instead of making that choice based off what God says, or making that choice based off what God has told us to do, instead we look inward at what we bring to the table, how well we've been walking with our faith, and how self-made we are, and we make a decision based off of that instead of what God has told us to do, what we bring to the table. Am I immune to having to go through this, or am I entitled to this specific blessing. Now, 
when we apply this term to the American church today, it doesn't take, it doesn't take too much looking and digging to find out that spiritual privilege has really crept into the hearts of believers today. And unfortunately, one area that we see this happen a lot in is in the rise of celebrity pastors, famous ministers, these big ministry scandals that take place. And I want to be clear again, I am not against megachurches. I'm not against influential pastors. I literally came to New Song from a megachurch. That was amazing. Changed my life forever. And the reality that we've got to understand is most of these pastors who have so much influence, God gave them that influence to bless you. So like, it's not a bad thing. But what we see happen, sadly, is a lot of these famous pastors and ministers, spiritual privilege starts to creep into their heart and they start to become immune to having to do certain things or entitled to certain things. And the reality is that all of the good that they are doing as a minister or as a ministry, no matter how good it is, Sometimes it can't cover up the ugly that is happening on the inside, right? We see this happen a lot. One person in particular, not to throw shade at anybody, but just to be real with you guys, one person that we see this in is in a guy, uh, his name was Ravi Zacharias. Now, if you don't know who Ravi Zacharias was, uh, he was an extremely influential pastor and minister and did a lot of good. He was an apologist. If you don't know what apologetics is, it's not a guy who just comes up and says, I'm sorry, a lot on stage, <laughs> but... Uh, it's, uh, it's actually the study of arguing for the faith. And so what he would do was amazing. His ministry would go around to all of these secular colleges and he would answer like the tough questions about the faith. And so he'd have these atheists and these agnostics ask him hard questions and he would answer them. And he was doing a lot of good in the body of Christ. In fact, I remember when I was in high school, he got invited to come preach at our church. And so he came and I remember hearing this, this is the first time I'd ever heard about apologetics, and he's preaching this message, and it is blowing my mind, because he's answering all these tough questions that I'm starting to wrestle with as a kid, like, oh, what, what does God do with evil, and why, does, why do bad things happen? And he's answering all of these questions, and he's doing it so, like, genuinely and gracefully and smart. Like, you know how you have the, there's some pastors, you know you're going to get a funny message out of them. Then there's other pastors, you know, you're going to go and you're going to get like really riled up and they're going to spit everywhere and the tons of amens. And then there's the smart pastors and they don't need you to give them one amen because they know what they're talking about. That was, that was what Ravi Zacharias was like. When you heard him, you're like, this guy is a genius. He's so smart. And, and the reason why I love apologetics to this day is because of that message I heard from him. But sadly, Ravi Zacharias is somebody who unfortunately let spiritual privilege creep into his heart. And it was the thing that completely ripped his legacy, his influence, everything from his hands because of the privilege that he allowed in his heart. Because right before his death in 2020, the ugly came out. Everything that was happening on the inside came out. In fact, one article written during that time says this. It says a 12-page report released Thursday by Ravi Zacharias International Ministries confirms the abuse by Zacharias at day spas he owned in Atlanta and uncovers five additional victims in the U.S., as well as evidence of sexual abuse in Thailand, India, and Malaysia. Even a limited review of his old devices revealed contacts for more than 200 massage therapists in the U.S. and in Asia and hundreds of images of young women, including some that showed the women naked. Zacharias solicited and received photos until a few months before his death in May 2020 at age 74. So this is, this is what spiritual privilege looks like. Ravi Zacharias, he made some terrible decisions. We all make terrible decisions, but he used his faithful track record, his influence to cover up things that were happening on the inside that God wanted to restore in him. And it's really unfortunate. And his spiritual privilege caused him to make decisions based off of himself instead of God. Now, I say that to bring up a grand scale picture of this, but the reality is we all experience spiritual privilege. So before we look at that and point out that and say how evil that is, let us first look inward at the plank in our own eye, amen, and recognize that we all deal with this too. Uh, so I'll just throw myself under the bus for the second. Is that okay with you guys? Uh, some of you guys know my story. Um, 
I never really saw myself growing up or even in college, I never saw myself doing what I do now, being a youth pastor, preaching messages. That was not what I was wanting to do at all. Um, and growing up, I grew up in the church, and when I started to own my own faith, uh, I definitely knew God had a ministry calling on my life. I wanted to help people. I wanted to serve God and serve the church. I just didn't want to do that from the platform. I wanted to do that behind the scenes. So I took my calling into my own hands. You know when you do that sometimes? And I go to Bible college, but I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a counselor because then I can help people one-on-one. -on -one. I don't have to preach messages, but I can still help people. And I start wrestling with God about this, and clearly he won the wrestle because like, I do this every, every week now. So God won. But long story short, I say, I say yes to God. I say yes to the calling of my life. I make some sacrifices. I moved to Oklahoma City from Dallas. And uh, after I moved here, if I'm just being real with you, I was having a hard time up here. And have you ever just woken up one morning and you're just letting yourself be down? Like you're not even trying to get up. You're just like letting yourself be so sad. This was me this one particular morning. I woke up. And I'm living at the Lynx apartment complex off Broadway. Haley, my wife, we weren't married yet. She's living in Tulsa, finishing up school. And I wake up on this one particular morning and I'm just down. And I'm not even trying to get up. And I'm just letting myself feel down. And I'm thinking thoughts like, man, this transition is just so hard. Nobody knows me here. I feel so lonely. I don't even want to be here. Ugh, like, I don't even want to be a youth pastor. I'm just whining, right? And I go into the kitchen before they go into the office to make some hipster coffee. Don't judge me, but I make hipster coffee at home, okay? So I go into the kitchen, and I get all my coffee gear set up, and I'm about to make a cup of coffee. And right before I start grinding my beans, because that's what hipsters do, they don't buy grounds. You, buy, you grind those beans, y'all. So I, I, go, I go to grind the beans, and the second I turn the knob, I felt the Holy Spirit just say to me, hey, Jackson. Would you sacrifice this cup of coffee today? And I was like, eh. and it's like not even a big ask. Like he's just, he's like, Jackson, would you just fast this morning? Like you're feeling so down, maybe fasting and connecting to the Lord would help. And so in this moment, my heart sank. It just dropped because I knew I've got a decision I need to make. Am I going to obey God and sacrifice one single cup of coffee? Or am I going to make my own decision based off of me? And unfortunately, I wish I could say that I obeyed the Lord, but you know what I did? I let spiritual privilege creep into my heart, and I started to think thoughts like, that was probably just you. I started to think like, why would God ask you to give up a cup of coffee? You've already given up so much. Like, you've already said yes to God. You've sacrificed so much. Just, just make the cup of coffee, Jackson. You deserve it. <laughs> so you know what I did? I made the cup of coffee. I drank it, and you know what? I thought about that cup for an entire month because I knew I disobeyed the Lord. I knew I disobeyed the Lord. So what I'm trying to get us to see is this is what spiritual privilege looks like. It can look like a big ministry scandal and we can all point at it and be like, whoa, look at how bad that is. But it looks like this, the Lord asking you for something and you not giving it. This is the same thing. The motivation is still the same. And and I want you to know this is no new problem. Like Jesus in the New Testament is constantly pointing out spiritual privilege in this group of people that we love to talk about called the Pharisees. And so I want to turn to Luke chapter 11. Would you turn with me there, church? Luke chapter 11 is a famous passage of scripture where we see Jesus doing the woe to the Pharisees. So he's calling out the Pharisees for their spiritual privilege and he is not going easy on them. Look at this. Starting in verse 37, it says, As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without performing the hand-washing ceremony done by Jewish custom. So Jesus doesn't do the custom. They're all freaking out. And look at what Jesus says. You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools. I told you, he's not going easy on them. He calls them fools. Fools. Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside of the cup 
by giving gifts to the poor. I want you to underline that. We're going to go back to that. Clean the inside of the cup by giving gifts to the poor, and you will be clean all over. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? They were like, oh, gosh, we're done. And no, he just keeps going on them. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So the Pharisees, if you were in biblical times, they were, they were the most influential people in your faith community. You were, they were looked up to. They were extremely holy. Everybody looked up to them as being the example of how it looks to serve and to follow and to love God. And they were like our pastors here at New Song. I hope you look up to them that way. And, you know, Pharisees were looked up at, uh, with a high regard. And then Jesus shows up and he just starts ruining everything for the Pharisees. Why? Because he can see right through all of the religious games that they're playing. He sees right through all of it. He can see how, yes, they are being meticulous about things like their tithe. In fact, commentators actually let us know that, that the Pharisees were so meticulous about their tithe that they would count the leaves on their herb gardens and tithe an exact 10% for the, for the temple. Like, like these guys were the epitome of holiness, and yet we see that spiritual privilege had crept into their hearts, and it allowed them to focus on looking righteous, but not actually caring about the things God cared about. And this is what we see in spiritual privilege in the Pharisees. But what does it do to our heart? How does it affect us as believers today? And how did it affect them? Well, I'm, I got four points for us. We're going to run through them pretty quickly. But the first one is this. Spiritual privilege pacifies conviction. It pacifies our conviction. The reality is nobody becomes a Pharisee overnight. And also, nobody consciously decides, I'm going to build a massive ministry with tons of influence that's helping tons of people all for it to crumble one day because of my secret sin. Like nobody wants that and chooses that consciously, but that happens. So how do we get there? Well, we get there by pacifying conviction with our spiritual privilege. What does that look like? It looks like this. It looks like you and I sinning, which by the way, we all do. Shocker, right? So that's not really the main issue. We all sin. But what happens is we sin, and then the sweet conviction of the Holy Spirit comes, and he starts to let us know, hey, uh, you're kind of missing the mark here, dude. Hey, you know you're not supposed to do that. Come on, come back to God. Just repent. And so the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, but instead of repenting, which is a good thing, telling a brother or a sister, confessing, instead of doing that, what do we do? We take an analysis of how well we've been walking already with our faith, or maybe the the way people view us, we take an analysis of, our, of the perception people have of us, and we think, uh, it's probably not worth ruining that, so I'm going to just pacify this conviction. It's like if you've ever had a, a young kid, I've, I've got an almost two-year-old, and we're about to take away the passy pretty soon, and I'm a little scared, y'all, <laughs> because that passy is powerful, right? She starts fussing, and I'm just, boop, and she's done. And that's, that's okay for toddlers, right? But that's not okay when it comes to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes and we start to look inward and see our track record or our performance or whatever, and we start to say, ah, I need to shut this up, that is spiritual privilege in our hearts. The second thing is this. Spiritual privilege kills integrity. Luke eleven thirty nine 39 says this. Then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy and full of greed and wickedness. So Jesus is pointing out the fact that they, the Pharisees are not living a whole life. Later on in the woe to the Pharisees, he talks about how you guys are laying heavy burdens on people that you aren't even willing to carry, right? He's saying you're telling people to serve God so hard and you aren't even doing that, right? There was an integrity in their life. This is what David Guzik says about this. If these religious leaders were as concerned about cleansing their hearts as they were their hands, they would be more godly men. We often want to look to ceremonies or rituals to cleanse us instead of the sacrificial work of God on our behalf. This is spiritual privilege. It kills our integrity. The third thing is this. Spiritual privilege blinds us from seeing what's really important. It blinds us. It gets us focused on ourselves so much to the point that we're a church that's not even doing church things, right? 
Luke 11.42 says this, What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. So Jesus points out the fact that the Pharisees are so focused on righteousness, on holy living, that's all great stuff, but they were not even serving the community that they were called to. They weren't caring about God's, God's heart. David Guzik says this, their tithing was meticulous and noteworthy, but hypocritical because it served to soothe the guilt of their neglect and the justice of love of God. It is both possible and common to be distracted with relatively trivial matters while a lost world perishes. Let me just remind you, church, we believe that New Song was planted here for a purpose. We believe that New Song was planted here to change our city. And we mean it when we say that. We believe we were planted here to see our, the, God's kingdom come, his will be done in Oklahoma City as it is in heaven, right? Let me just remind you, we serve a God who we don't have to talk him into doing those things. We don't have to talk God into moving in our city. What, what he's actually waiting on is for his family, for the church to start caring about the things he already cares about. And man, the reality is in, our, in, in the church today, we get so caught up on trivial matters sometimes. We get, we get caught up on ourselves so much to the point that we forget and we neglect the things that God is actually trying to do through us. The last thing is this, number four, spiritual privilege leads to a facade. And eventually this is what Jesus was calling out in the Pharisees. It was a facade. It was an outward appearance of righteousness, but it didn't match up with the ugly that was happening on the inside. And God saw right through their spiritual privilege. And man, God sees right through it in us. He sees right through it. So what do we do? Church, what do we do when we start to see and recognize, I don't know, I think I've been doing this a little bit in my life. How do we overcome this? Well, in Luke 40, Jesus actually gives us the answer, and it's not really what you would expect. He says, fools. There he is again with the fools. We need to bring that back. Fool. Didn't, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside of the cup by giving gifts to the poor, and you will be clean all over. Now, I don't think this is Jesus giving us like a prescriptive answer, but descriptive. What I mean by that is Jesus isn't saying we... We overcome our spiritual privilege by giving all of our money to every poor person we see on the side of the street, even though that's not a bad thing. What Jesus is describing to us is he's saying, hey, you break spiritual privilege through sacrificial living. Because the reality is you and I look the most like Jesus when we are sacrificing, right? And so this is why our sacrifice must be stronger than privilege. You all ready to talk about sacrifice now? Let's get into sacrifice. If, uh, if we've been given book recommendations out in this series, I've got a book recommendation for you. Are you all cool with that? You need to get this book. It's called The Spirit of the Disciplines. It's by a guy named Dallas Willard. I love this book. I've read it like three times. I constantly go back to it. It's a beautiful book about spiritual disciplines. It's pretty self-explanatory. But this is what he says about sacrifice. He says, The discipline of sacrifice is one in which we forsake the security of meeting our needs with what is in our hands. And we could just end it right there because that is such a good definition look at this it's the total abandonment to god a stepping into the darkened abyss in faith and hope that god will bear us up our need to give is greater than god's need to receive because god is always well supplied but how nourishing to our faith are the tokens of God's care in response to our sacrifice what he's saying is when you sacrifice you your faith gets encouraged because God takes care of you instead of you taking care of you, right? Let's continue. The cautious faith that never saws off the limb on which it's sitting never learns that unattached limbs may find strange, unaccountable ways of not falling. So he's saying, when we never sacrifice, when we never step out in faith, we never find out that God sometimes works in supernatural ways to take care of us. And sacrifice is something that is for being honest, is not glorified in the American church. We like to talk about victory. We like to talk about the promised land. We like to talk about, we like to talk about your blessings, right? You know what I'm talking about? But the Bible glorifies sacrifice because from cover to cover, this book is literally chocked full of God asking people to give things away. 
it's chocked full of God asking people to sacrifice their pride, their money, their plans, their stuff. You name it, God has probably asked somebody to sacrifice it. But why though? Does God want us to sacrifice because he doesn't want us to have nice things? Is he just some big meanie and the second we get something nice, we get scared because we're like, what if God takes this from me? No, 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 that's not God's heart. God doesn't need your sacrifice, but what God wants through your sacrifice is your complete trust in him. Because that's the reality. Sacrifice puts us in a place where we have to trust God instead of us just saying that we trust God but never actually doing it. Does that make sense? This is why sacrifice is important. Because remember, spiritual privilege is the aspect of examining me, what I bring to the table, how self-made I think I am. But sacrifice is completely in the opposite direction mentally because it says, it recognizes that everything I have been given came from God. Everything I have, God gave to me. I didn't earn any of this. My job, my money, my stuff, my family. Yeah, sure, I worked for it, but God gave it to me. And if God is the one who gave it to me in the first place and he's asking for it, then God will be the one who can take care of me when I don't have it. Some of y'all did not understand that and I did not get enough amens for that. If God is the one who gave it to you and he's asking you to lay it down, how much more can he take care of you when it's not in your life? I'm here to tell you he can. He can take care of you. And so for the rest of our time, I want to look at three things that God will eventually ask every single one of us to sacrifice. The first one is this. We sacrifice our pride on the altar of perception. We sacrifice our pride on the altar of perception. Now, we were just in Luke chapter 11, the woe to the Pharisees, but just three chapters later, Jesus finds himself at a big dinner table with the Pharisees, and they're all fighting over the best seat at the table. Now, Biblical times, if you were at a dinner table, the place that you sat at that table said a lot about who you were as a person. It meant you were important, you were looked up into in the community, you were influential, so you wanted to be closer to the head of the table. And so Jesus, he's at this dinner party and all the Pharisees are just all up in their egos about sitting in the front of the table. They're just fighting over the best seat in the house. And then Jesus gives them this parable. He says, when you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if somebody who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? Then the host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed. I love that. Jesus is just like, he's looking out for us. He didn't want us to feel embarrassed at a dinner party. <laughs> That's a funny joke, y'all. He says, then you will be embarrassed. You will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, sacrifice your pride. He says, take the lowest seat at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of other guests for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. I love this. Now, what, is, what does spiritual privilege say about how people view us. It says this, look at me. I deserve to be seen. You need to notice how hard I'm working. Why am I not being promoted for all of the things I'm doing? This is spiritual privilege. It, it is a, a mindset that places ourselves in particular places and spaces only so that people can see us in order for us to be motivated. That's what spiritual privilege looks like. But sacrifice is the complete opposite because it says, I don't care if you see me because God sees me. I don't need you to notice me because I serve a God who sees everything I do. And because God sees me, I would rather have him promote me in his timing than me promote myself and my timing and lose it all in front of you. That's what spiritual sacrifice looks like. It says, I would rather God promote me in his timing than me promote myself and lose it all because it wasn't in God's timing. So my, my question for you today, church, is, man, man, has spiritual privilege crept up in your pride? Have you been asking and thinking, thinking these things? I deserve blank. I'm entitled to this position. Why aren't people noticing me? I'm working so hard. Why am I not being honored? Is it possible that this is spiritual privilege that has crept up into your heart? 
Is it possible that this is keeping you from actually sacrificing in a way that you would see God move on your behalf? We sacrifice our pride on the altar of perception. The second thing is this. We sacrifice our money on the altar of provision. I'm going there, y'all. Sorry about you. <laughs> but I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about stuff, materials, wealth, everything in general. We sacrifice all of that on the altar of provision. Look at this, Luke 21, one through four. It says, while Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts off in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all of the rest of them. For she has given a tiny part, or for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on this point because we're going to talk about generosity later in the series, but we have got to get comfortable, church, with the, with the reality that as believers, we are all called to sacrificial giving. We're all called to sacrificial giving. But here's what's amazing about this. As uncomfortable as sacrificial giving is, and I've been there, God has asked Haley and I to give things sometimes where it's like, Ugh, that's really going to make it difficult. But what's amazing about sacrificial giving is God actually wired all of us to be the most fulfilled when we're giving instead of receiving. How awesome is that? God literally wired us to be the most fulfilled in our life when we are giving our things away or giving to people who God has told us to give to rather than chasing to receive. That's how God wired you. Look at this, David Guzik says this, the widow challenged the mindset that says, I'll give when I have more. Have you ever said that before? I'll give when I have more, when I make more. The widow had virtually nothing, yet she was a giver. This means that we can all please God with our giving just as much as the richest man can please God with his giving. Whatever we give sacrificially to God, he sees it and is pleased. So we sacrifice our money, our materials. We don't hold on to these white-knuckled like they actually provide for us when we serve a God who provides for us, church. Amen? And the last thing is this. We sacrifice our plans on the altar of control. We sacrifice our plans on the altar of control. Now, this last point, we're going to wrap this, this thing up, but I really need you to lean in with me because we're going to go deep. Is that okay with you guys? Yes. You still hanging in with me? Okay. So I think... A guy who knows what sacrifice feels like outside of Jesus, obviously, in the Bible, a guy who knows what sacrifice feels like is a guy named Abraham. Y'all remember Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons. Okay. I sang that Saturday and nobody sang with me. It was really sad, actually. Uh, but Abraham knows what sacrifice looks like. Man, let's go to Abraham's story. Early on in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a guy named Abram. He's a nobody. He lives in, the town, or in a place called Haran. Nobody knows who he is. But God comes to him and says, I want you to leave this place that you've known and go where I'm going to tell you. I love that. God doesn't even tell him where he's going to go. He's just like, go that way. So Abraham goes. God gives Abraham a promise. I'll make your family a nation that's going to bless the entire world. So Abraham obeys. He obeys God, he leaves, and he disobeys God, and then he obeys, and he obeys, disobeys. And then fast forward to Genesis 15, we get this really interesting story. This is a passage where it's like, you know how you've got like, your like refrigerator passages of the Bible, and then you've got those passages like, we don't really talk about, like we don't put these passages on our refrigerators. This is one of those, right? Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham, and he's he hasn't given him Isaac yet. And he's reminding Abraham of the covenant relationship that they're in, but he does it in a really interesting way. He asks Abraham for a sacrifice, a specific sacrifice. So Abraham takes all of these specific animals, he splits them in half, it's really bloody and gory and nasty. He makes a pathway with the two sides of these animals, and then something interesting happens. He goes to sleep and has a visitation from the Lord. And this is what happens in Genesis 15. It says, after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. I don't know why it's a smoking fire pot or a flaming torch, but God can do whatever he wants, right? He can do whatever he wants. He's God. So he has this vision of God coming through this sacrifice 
And look at the next verse. It just says, so the Lord made a covenant with Abraham that day. That's all it says. Now, we read this today and we're like, that's kind of weird. That doesn't really make sense to me. God, what does this mean? But for Abraham, this vision would have spoken volumes to him because he grew up in, in, in an era where this was a, 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 a normal sacrifice that would be made. This was called the cutting covenant. So if you were another family, if you and another family in this time were gonna make a covenant between one another, you would do this cutting covenant. You would take specific animals, you would cut them in half, you would make this nasty pathway, and both families would walk through those pathways. And it was a symbolic saying, if I don't come through on my end of the promise, then this is gonna happen to me. So it was a powerful symbol. But here's what's interesting about this one because Abraham is not walking through it. It's only God walking through it. Look at this, John Mark Comer says this, God makes Abraham fall into a deep sleep and in it, Abraham sees a vision of God in the, in the image of a smoking fire pot walking through the animals all by himself. It's God saying that even if Abraham and his children don't keep their end of the bargain, he will still keep his. This is powerful. Abraham is being reminded that he's in a covenant relationship with God, which means anything God asks him to sacrifice, he can trust God. You following me? Now, here's what's crazy. The very next chapter, you know what Abraham does after this powerful encounter with God? He sleeps with his servant. He takes the promise and the plan into his own hands. And even after seeing this vision, he still doesn't understand how him and Sarah are gonna have children. It doesn't make sense to him. So he takes the promise, he takes the plan into his own hands outside of God's timing. And then we know what happens with that story. So fast forward though, Abraham and Sarah, they get Isaac, they get the promise. God comes through for them. And then in Genesis chapter 22, God asks for another sacrifice from Abraham, but this time it's not animals, it's his son. So what is God saying? Abraham, would you lay down the entire plan for me? Would you lay down the entire plan for me? And what's interesting is this time, this, when this sacrifice comes around, it seems like Abraham doesn't even hesitate to sacrifice his son. Like somebody needs to go tell Abraham to chill out, dude, because you're, you're scaring me a little bit with how quickly you were going to sacrifice Isaac. God asks for this sacrifice and Abraham goes straight to the mountain the very next morning. Why was he able to do this? Why was he able to do this so quickly? I think it's because of this vision he had with the Lord, because he knew I'm in covenant relationship with God. That means if God is asking me for this sacrifice, even if it doesn't make sense to me, I will give it because God will always come through for his promise. Now here's what's amazing. We are actually in a better covenant than Abraham. We are in a better covenant with God and we've seen God move and we've seen God move to the point that he would sacrifice his own son so that you and I would be raised to new life with him. So how much more can we sacrifice the things God asks for us because we serve this kind of God who says, it doesn't matter how many times you don't come through on the promise, I will always come through for you. Amen, church. I wanna leave you with this. We live in an upside, an upside down kingdom. I hope you know that we live in an upside down backwards kingdom. In the world we live in, we use our privilege to avoid making sacrifices. But in the kingdom of God, we understand that it is a privilege to sacrifice to a God who sacrificed everything for us. Amen, church. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Holy Spirit, thank you for being here today. Thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you that our religion is so different and so backwards than any other man-made religion in this world because the God that we serve sacrificed everything for us. Instead of requiring us to sacrifice everything for him, God, you moved first and you laid all of it down for us first. And Holy Spirit, I, I recognize that there are some people in this room today who find themselves in a similar, similar place like I was, where you're asking for something from us. Maybe it's little, like a cup of coffee. Maybe it's our time. Maybe it's our money. Maybe it's our plans. We've got our whole future planned out. We've, 
we're gonna date this person and we're gonna get married at this time. We're gonna have kids at this time. We've got this whole plan mapped out. And maybe the Holy Spirit is inviting you to lay that down and to trust. I don't know, I don't know where you find yourself today, but I know there are some people here today and the Lord is inviting you to sacrifice. And that is hard, but I'm here to remind you that you are in relationship with a covenant God. If you're a believer, you're in covenant with God. Meaning if, he, if you sacrifice anything that he's told you to sacrifice, he will take care of you. So what is that thing for you? What is that thing? And maybe some spiritual privilege has creeped into your heart and you've, you have withheld that sacrifice because you think you need it. You think you need that provision. You need that control. You need that whatever. Man, the Holy Spirit is inviting you today to trust God and to lay that down and to see him come through for you. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to us today? Everything in our life is, is, off, is not off limits to you. God, you gave us everything. Whatever you want from us, God, we say yes. We say yes, you can have it all. We're gonna get ready to respond to this message. I wanna invite you to stand with me and I wanna invite the altar ministry team to make their way down to the, to the altars today. If you have a prayer need of any kind, we would love to pray for you, especially, man, if there's something stirring in your heart and you know, you know God has asked you to lay something down and you're holding on to it, whether it is financially or the future and your plans or relationship, whatever it is, if God is asking you to sacrifice to that, that thing today, we would love to pray in faith with you that you can have the strength to do it and to see God come through for you. But whatever you need prayer for, we would love to pray with you. And finally, man, we're gonna respond to this message worshiping our God. So if you don't need prayer, would you pray for the people that are coming down and, and respond to this message? Father, we thank you so much for today. You are a good and faithful God. I thank you that we serve a covenant God. God, that you come through for us no matter what. And so because of that, because you're a good father, anything that you ask of us, anything that you require from us, anything that you are asking to lay down, we say yes. We say, yes, God, you can have our plans. You can have our pride. You can have our money, our house, our time, our Wednesdays, whatever it is, you can have it because you are a faithful God and we love you and we serve you today. And I pray that anybody who has a prayer need, that they would feel a tug of the Holy Spirit to come down to the altar and to lay that down today in the mighty name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's message from New Song Church. If you have a prayer need or would like more information about New Song, you can email info at newsongpeople.com. If you would like to partner with New Song through giving, go to www.newsongpeople.com forward slash give. And if you want to stay connected to New Song, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for New Song People.